Chapter Thirty of Pushing to the Front by Horizon Sweat Marden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Luke Sartor. Chapter Thirty Self Help. I learned that no man in God's wide earth is either willing or able to help any other man. Pestalozzi. What I am, I have made myself. Humphrey Davy Be sure, my son, and remember that the best men always make themselves. Patrick Henry Hereditary bondsmen, know ye not, who would be free themselves must strike the blow. Byron who waits to have his task marked out, shall die and leave his errand unfulfilled. Lowell Colonel Crockett makes room for himself, exclaimed a backwoods congressman, in answer to the exclamation of the White House usher, to make room for Colonel Crockett. This remarkable man was not afraid to oppose the head of a great nation. He preferred being right to being president. Though rough, uncultured, and uncouth, Crockett was a man of great courage and determination. Poverty is uncomfortable, as I can testify, said James A. Garfield. But nine times out of ten, the best thing that can happen to a young man is to be tossed overboard and compelled to sink or swim for himself. In all my acquaintance, I have never known a man to be drowned who was worth the saving. Garfield was the youngest member of the House of Representatives when he entered, but he had not been in his seat sixty days before his ability was recognized and his place conceded. He stepped to the front with the confidence of one who belonged there. He succeeded because all the world in concert could not have kept him in the background and because, when once in the front, he played his part with an intrepidity and a commanding ease that were but the outward evidences of the immense reserves of energy on which it was in his power to draw. Take the place and attitude which belongs to you, says Emerson, and all men acquiesce. The world must be just. It leaves every man with profound unconcern to set his own rate. A person under the firm persuasion that he can command resources virtually has them, says Livy. Richard Arkwright, the thirteenth child in a hovel, with no education, no chance, gave his spinning model to the world and put a sceptre in England's right hand, such as the Queen never wielded. Solario, a wandering gypsy tinker, fell deeply in love with the daughter of the painter Col Antonio del Fiore, but was told that no one but a painter as good as the father should wed the maiden. Will you give me ten years to learn to paint, and so entitle myself to the hand of your daughter? consent was given. Cole Antonio, thinking that he would never be troubled further by the gypsy, 
About the time that the ten years were to end, the king's sister showed Colantonio a Madonna and a child, which the painter extolled in terms of the highest praise. Judge of his surprise on learning that Solario was the artist. His great determination gained him his bride. Louis Philippe said he was the only sovereign in Europe fit to govern, for he could black his own boots. When asked to name his family coat of arms, a self-made president of the United States replied, A pair of shirt-sleeves. It is not the men who have inherited most, except it be in nobility, of soul and purpose, who have risen highest, but rather the men with no start, who have won fortunes and have made adverse circumstances a spur to goad them up the steep mount, where fame's proud temple shines afar. To such men every possible goal is accessible, and honest ambition has no height that genius or talent may tread, which has not felt the impress of their feet. You may leave your millions to your son, but have you really given him anything? You cannot transfer the discipline, the experience, the power which the acquisition has given you. You cannot transfer the delight of achieving, the joy felt only in growth, the pride of acquisition, the character which trained habits of accuracy, method, promptness, patience, dispatch, honesty of dealing, politeness of manner have developed. You cannot transfer the skill, sagacity, prudence, foresight, which lie concealed in your wealth. It meant a great deal for you, but means nothing to your heir. In climbing to your fortune, you developed the muscle, stamina, and strength which enabled you to maintain your lofty position, to keep your millions intact. You had the power which comes only from experience, and which alone enables you to stand firm on your dizzy height. Your fortune was experience to you, joy, growth, discipline, and character. To him, it will be a temptation, an anxiety, which will probably dwarf him. It was wings to you, it will be a dead weight to him. To you, it was education and expansion of your highest powers. To him, it may mean inaction, lethargy, indolence, weakness, ignorance. You have taken the priceless spur, necessity, away from him. The spur which has goaded man to nearly all the great achievements in the history of the world. You thought it a kindness to deprive yourself in order that your son might begin where you left off. You thought to spare him the drudgery, the hardships, the deprivations, the lack of opportunities, the meagre education which you had on the old farm. But you have put a crutch into his hand instead of a staff. You have taken away from him the incentive to self-development, to self-elevation, to self-discipline and self-help without which no real success, no real happiness, no great character is ever possible. 
his enthusiasm will evaporate, his energy will be dissipated, his ambition, not being stimulated by the struggle for self-elevation, will gradually die away. If you do everything for your son and fight his battles for him, you will have a weakling on your hands at twenty-one. My life is a wreck, said the dying Cyrus W. Field. My fortune gone, my home dishonoured. Oh, I was so unkind to Edward when I thought I was being kind. If I had only had firmness enough to compel my boys to earn their living, then they would have known the meaning of money. His table was covered with medals and certificates of honour from many nations, in recognition of his great work for civilization, in mooring two continents side by side in thought, of the fame he had won and could never lose. But grief shook the sands of life as he thought only of the son who had brought disgrace upon a name before unsullied. The wounds were sharper than those of a serpent's tooth. During the great financial crisis of 1857, Maria Mitchell, who was visiting England, asked an English lady what became of daughters when no property was left them. They live on their brothers, was the reply. But what becomes of the American daughters, asked the English lady, when there is no money left? They earn it, was Miss Mitchell's reply. Men who have been bolstered up all their lives are seldom good for anything in a crisis. When misfortune comes, they look around for somebody to lean upon. If the prop is not there, down they go. Once down, they are as helpless as capsized turtles, or unhorsed men in armor. Many a frontier boy has succeeded beyond all his expectations, simply because all props were early knocked out from under him and he was obliged to stand upon his own feet. A man's best friends are his ten fingers, said Robert Collier, who brought his wife to America in the steerage. There is no manhood mill which takes in boys and turns out men. What you call no chance may be your only chance. Don't wait for your place to be made for you. Make it yourself. Don't wait for somebody to give you a lift. Lift yourself. Henry Ward Beecher did not wait for a call to a big church with a large salary. He accepted the first pastorate offered him in a little town near Cincinnati. He became literally the light of the church, for he trimmed the lamps, kindled the fires, swept the rooms, and rang the bell. His salary was only about $200 a year, but he knew that a fine church and a great salary cannot make a great man. It was work and opportunity that he wanted. He felt that if there were anything in him, work would bring it out. When Beethoven was examining the work of Moscheles, he found written at the end, Finis, with God's help. He wrote under it, Man, help yourself. A young man stood listlessly 
watching some anglers on a bridge. He was poor and dejected. At length, approaching a basket filled with fish, he sighed. If now I had these, I would be happy. I could sell them and buy food and lodgings. I will give you just as many and just as good, said the owner, who chanced to overhear his words, if you will do me a trifling favor. And what is that? asked the other. Only tend this line till I come back. I wish to go on a short errand. The proposal was gladly accepted. The old man was gone so long that the young man began to get impatient. Meanwhile, the fish snapped greedily at the hook, and he lost all his depression in the excitement of pulling them in. When the owner returned, he had caught a large number, counting out from them as many as were in the basket, and presenting them to the youth, the old fisherman said, I fulfill my promise from the fish you have caught, to teach you whenever you see others earning what you need to, waste no time in foolish wishing, but cast a line for yourself. A white squall caught a party of tourists on a lake in Scotland, and threatened to capsize the boat. When it seemed that the crisis had really come, the largest and strongest man in the party, in a state of intense fear, said, Let us pray. No, no, my man, shouted the bluff old boatman. Let the little man pray. You take the oar. The grandest fortunes ever accumulated or possessed on earth were and are the fruit of endeavour that had no capital to begin with, save energy, intellect, and the will. From Croesus down to Rockefeller, the story is the same, not only in the getting of wealth, but also in the acquirement of eminence. Those men have won most who relied most upon themselves. The male inhabitants in the township of Loferdom, in the county of Hatework, says a printer's squib, found themselves laboring under great inconvenience for want of an easily travelled road between poverty and independence. They therefore petitioned the powers that be to levy a tax upon the property of the entire county for the purpose of laying out a macadamized highway, broad and smooth, and all the way downhill to the latter place. Everyone is the artificer of his own fortune, says Sallust. Man is not merely the architect of his own fate, but he must lay the bricks himself. Bayard Taylor, at twenty-three, wrote, I will become the sculptor of my own mind's statue. His biography shows how often the chisel and hammer were in his hands to shape himself into his ideal. Labor is the only legal tender in the world to true success. The gods sell everything for that. Nothing without it. You will never find success marked down. The door to the temple of success is never left open. 
Everyone who enters makes his own door, which closes behind him to all others. Circumstances have rarely favored great men. They have fought their way to triumph over the road of difficulty and through all sorts of opposition. A lowly beginning and a humble origin are no bar to a great career. The farmer's boys fill many of the greatest places in legislatures, in business, at the bar, in pulpits, in Congress, today. Boys of lowly origin have made many of the greatest discoveries, are presidents of our banks and our colleges, of our universities. Our poor boys and girls have written many of our greatest books and have filled the highest places as teachers and journalists. Ask almost any great man in our large cities where he was born, and he will tell you it was on a farm or in a small country village. Nearly all of the great capitalists of the city came from the country. Isaac Rich, the founder of Boston University, left Cape Cod for Boston to make his way with a capital of only four dollars. Like Horace Greeley, he could find no opening for a boy. But what of that? He made an opening. He found a board and made it into an oyster stand on the street corner. He borrowed a wheelbarrow and went three miles to an oyster smack, bought three bushels of oysters and wheeled them to his stand. Soon his little savings amounted to $130, and then he bought a horse and cart. Self-help has accomplished about all the great things of the world. How many young men falter, faint, and dally with their purpose, because they have no capital to start with, and wait and wait for some good luck to give them a lift. But success is the child of drudgery and perseverance. It cannot be coaxed or bribed. Pay the price, and it is yours. Where is the boy today who has less chance to rise in the world than Elihu Burit, apprenticed to a blacksmith, in whose shop he had to work at the forge all the daylight, and often by candlelight? Yet he managed, by studying with a book before him at his meals, carrying it in his pocket that he might utilize every spare moment, and studying at night and holidays, to pick up an excellent education in the odds and ends of time which most boys throw away. While the rich boy and the idler were yawning and stretching and getting their eyes open, Young Burit had seized the opportunity and improved it. At thirty years of age he was master of every important language in Europe and was studying those of Asia. What chance had such a boy for distinction? Probably not a single youth will read this book who has not a better opportunity for success. Yet he had a thirst for knowledge and a desire for self-improvement which overcame every obstacle in his pathway. If the youth of America who are struggling against cruel circumstances to do something and be somebody in the world could only understand that 90% of what is called genius 
is merely the result of persistent, determined industry, in most cases of downright hard work, that it is the slavery to a single idea which has given to many a mediocre talent the reputation of being a genius, they would be inspired with new hope. It is interesting to note that the men who talk most about genius are the men who like to work the least. The lazier the man, the more he will have to say about great things being done by genius. The greatest geniuses have been the greatest workers. Sheridan was considered a genius, but it was found that the brilliance and offhand sayings with which he used to dazzle the House of Commons were elaborated, polished, and repolished, and put down in his memorandum book, ready for any emergency. Genius has been well defined as the infinite capacity for taking pains. If men who have done great things could only reveal to the struggling youth of today how much of their reputations was due to downright hard digging and plodding, what an uplift of inspiration and encouragement they would give. How often I have wished that the discouraged, struggling youth could know of the heartaches, the headaches, the nerve aches, the disheartening trials, the discouraged hours, the fears and a despair involved in works which have gained the admiration of the world, but which have taxed the utmost powers of their authors. You can read in a few minutes or a few hours a poem or a book with only pleasure and delight, but the days and months of weary plodding over details and dreary drudgery often required to produce it would stagger belief. The greatest works in literature have been elaborated and elaborated, line by line, paragraph by paragraph, often rewritten a dozen times. The drudgery which literary men have put into the productions, which have stood the test of time, is almost incredible. Lucretius worked nearly a lifetime on one poem. It completely absorbed his life. It is said that Bryant rewrote Thanatopsis a hundred times, and even then was not satisfied with it. John Foster would sometimes linger a week over a single sentence. He would hack, split, prune, pull up by the roots, or practice any other severity on whatever he wrote, till it gained his consent to exist. Chalmers was once asked what Foster was about in London. Hard at it, he replied, at the rate of a line a week. Even Lord Bacon, one of the greatest geniuses that ever lived, at his death left large numbers of manuscripts filled with sudden thoughts set down for use. Hume toiled thirteen hours a day on his History of England, Lord Eldon astonished the world with his great legal learning. But when he was a student, too poor to buy books, he had actually borrowed and copied many hundreds of pages of large law books. Matthew Hale for years studied law sixteen hours a day. Speaking of Fox, someone declared that he wrote, 
drop by drop. Rousseau says of the labor involved in his smooth and lively style, My manuscripts, blotted, scratched, interlined, and scarcely legible, attest the trouble they cost me. There is not one of them which I have not been obliged to transcribe four or five times before it went to press. Some of my periods I have turned or returned in my head for five or six nights before they were fit to be put to paper. Beethoven probably surpassed all other musicians in his painstaking fidelity and persistent application. There is scarcely a bar in his music that was not written and rewritten at least a dozen times. His favorite maxim was, The barriers are not yet erected, which can say to aspiring talent and industry, Thus far and no further. Gibbon wrote his autobiography nine times, and was in his study every morning, summer and winter at six o'clock. And yet youth who waste their evenings wonder at the genius which can produce the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, upon which Gibbon worked twenty years. Even Plato, one of the greatest writers that ever lived, wrote the first sentence in his Republic nine different ways before he was satisfied with it. Burke wrote the conclusion of his speech at the trial of Hastings sixteen times, and Butler his famous analogy twenty times. It took Virgil seven years to write his Georgics, and twelve years to write the Aeneid. He was so displeased with the latter that he attempted to rise from his deathbed to commit it to the flames. Hayden was very poor. His father was a coachman, and he, friendless and lonely, married a servant girl. He was sent away from home to act as errand boy for a music teacher. He absorbed a great deal of information, but he had a hard life of persecution until he became a barber in Vienna. Here he blacked boots for an influential man, who became a friend to him. In 1798 this poor boy's oratorio, The Creation, came upon the musical world like the rising of a new sun which never set. He was courted by princes and dined with kings and queens. His reputation was made. There was no more barbering, no more poverty. But of his 800 compositions, The Creation eclipsed them all. He died while Napoleon's guns were bombarding Vienna, some of the shot falling in his garden. When a man like Lord Kavanagh, without arms or legs, manages to put himself into Parliament, when a man like Francis Joseph Campbell, a blind man, becomes a distinguished mathematician, a musician, and a great philanthropist, we get a hint as to what it means to make the most possible out of ourselves and our opportunities. Perhaps ninety-nine of a hundred under such unfortunate circumstances would be content to remain helpless objects of charity for life. If it is your call to acquire money power instead of brain power, to acquire business power instead of professional power, Double your talent just the same, 
no matter what it may be. A glover's apprentice of Glasgow, Scotland, who was too poor to afford even a candle or a fire, and who studied by the light of the shop windows in the streets, and when the shops were closed, climbed the lamp-post, holding his book in one hand and clinging to the lamp-post with the other. This poor boy, with less chance than almost any boy in America, became the most eminent scholar of Scotland. Francis Parkman, half blind, became one of America's greatest historians in spite of everything, because he made himself such. Personal value is a coin of one's own minting. One is taken at the worth he has put into himself. Franklin was but a poor printer's boy, whose highest luxury at one time was only a penny roll eaten in the streets of Philadelphia. Michael Faraday was a poor boy, son of a blacksmith, who apprenticed him at the age of thirteen to a bookbinder in London. Michael laid the foundations of his future greatness by making himself familiar with the contents of the books he bound. He remained at night, after others had gone, to read and study the precious volumes. Lord Tenterden was proud to point out to his son the shop where he had shaved for a penny. A French doctor once taunted Fletcher, Bishop of Nismay, who had been a tallow-chandler in his youth, with the meanness of his origin, to which he replied, If you had been born in the same condition that I was, you would still have been but a maker of candles. Edwin Chadwick, in his report to the British Parliament, stated that children, working on half-time, that is, studying three hours a day and working the rest of their time out of doors, really made the greatest intellectual progress during the year. Businessmen have often accomplished wonders during the busiest lives by simply devoting one, two, three or four hours daily to study or other literary work. James Watt received only the rudiments of an education at school, for his attendance was irregular on account of delicate health. He more than made up for all deficiencies, however, by the diligence with which he pursued his studies at home. Alexander V was a beggar. He was born mud and died marble. William Herschel, placed at the age of fourteen as a musician in the band of the Hanoverian Guards, devoted all his leisure to philosophical studies. He acquired a large fund of general knowledge, and in astronomy, a science in which he was wholly self-instructed, his discoveries entitled him to rank with the greatest astronomers of all time. George Washington was the son of a widow, born under the roof of a Westmoreland farmer. Almost from infancy his lot had been that of an orphan. No academy had welcomed him to its shade. No college crowned him with its honours. To read, to write, to cipher, these had been his degrees in knowledge. Shakespeare learned little more than reading and writing at school, but by self-culture he made himself the great master among literary men.
Burns, too, enjoyed few advantages of education, and his youth was passed in almost abject poverty. James Ferguson, the son of a half-starved peasant, learned to read by listening to the recitations of one of his elder brothers. While a mere boy, he discovered several mechanical principles, made models of mills and spinning wheels, and by means of beads on strings, worked out an excellent map of the heavens. Ferguson made remarkable things with a common penknife. How many great men have mounted the hill of knowledge by out-of-the-way paths? Gifford worked his intricate problems with a shoemaker's awl on a bit of leather. Rittenhouse first calculated eclipses on his plough handle. Columbus, while leading the life of a sailor, managed to become the most accomplished geographer and astronomer of his time. When Peter the Great, a boy of seventeen, became the absolute ruler of Russia, his subjects were little better than savages, and in himself even the passions and propensities of barbarism were so strong that they were frequently exhibited during his whole career. But he determined to transform himself and the Russians into civilized people. He instituted reforms with great energy, and at the age of twenty-six started on a visit to the other countries of Europe for the purpose of learning about their arts and institutions. At Sardom, Holland, he was so impressed with the sights of the great East India dockyard that he apprenticed himself to a shipbuilder, and helped to build the St. Peter, which he promptly purchased. Continuing his travels, after he had learned his trade, he worked in England in paper mills, sawmills, rope yards, watchmakers' shops, and other manufactories, doing the work and receiving the treatment of a common laborer. While traveling, his constant habit was to obtain as much information as he could beforehand with regard to every place he was to visit, and he would demand let me see all. When setting out on his investigations on such occasions, he carried his tablets in his hand, and whatever he deemed worthy of remembrance was carefully noted down. He would often leave his carriage if he saw the country people at work by the wayside as he passed along, and not only enter into conversation with them on agricultural affairs, but also accompany them to their homes examine their furniture, and take drawings of their implements of husbandry. Thus he obtained much minute and correct knowledge, which he would scarcely have acquired by other means, and which he afterward turned to admirable account in the improvement of his own country. The ancients said, Know thyself. The twentieth century says, help thyself. Self-culture gives a second birth to the soul. A liberal education is a true regeneration. When a man is once liberally educated, he will generally remain a man, not shrink to a mannequin, nor dwindle to a brute. But if he is not properly educated, if he has merely been crammed and stuffed through college, if he has 
merely a broken-down memory from trying to hold crammed facts enough to pass the examination, he will continue to shrink, shrivel, and dwindle, often below his original proportions, for he will lose both his confidence and self-respect as his crammed facts, which never became a part of himself, evaporate from his distended memory. Every bit of education or culture is of great advantage in the struggle for existence. The microscope does not create anything new, but it reveals marvels. To educate the eye adds to its magnifying power until it sees beauty where before it saw only ugliness. It reveals a world we never suspected and finds the greatest beauty even in the commonest things. The eye of an Agassiz could see worlds of which the uneducated eye never dreamed. The cultured hand can do a thousand things the uneducated hand cannot do. It becomes graceful, steady of nerve, strong, skillful. Indeed, it almost seems to think, so animated is it with intelligence. The cultured will can seize, grasp, and hold the possessor with irresistible power and nerve to almost superhuman effort. The educated touch can almost perform miracles. The educated taste can achieve wonders almost past belief. When a contrast between the cultured, logical, profound, masterly reason of a Gladstone and that of the hod-carrier who has never developed or educated his reason beyond what is necessary to enable him to mix mortar and carry brick. Be careful to avoid that over-intellectual culture which is purchased at the expense of moral vigor. An observant professor of one of our colleges has remarked that the mind may be so rounded and polished by education and so well balanced as not to be energetic in any one faculty. In other men not thus trained, the sense of deficiency and of the sharp, jagged corners of their knowledge leads to efforts to fill up the chasms, rendering them at last far better educated men than the polished, easy-going graduate who has just knowledge enough to prevent consciousness of his ignorance. While all the faculties of the mind should be cultivated, it is yet desirable that it should have two or three rough-hewn features of massive strength. Young men are too apt to forget the great end of life, which is to be and to do, not to read and brood over what other men have been and done. I repeat that my object is not to give him knowledge, but to teach him how to acquire it at need, said Rousseau. All learning is self-teaching. It is upon the working of the pupil's own mind that his progress in knowledge depends. The great business of the master is to teach the pupil to teach himself. Thinking, not growth, makes manhood, says Isaac Taylor. Accustom yourself, therefore, to thinking. Set yourself to understand whatever you see or read. 
to join thinking with reading is one of the first maxims and one of the easiest operations how few think justly of the thinking few how many never think who think they do end of chapter 30 self help recording by luke sartor brisbane queensland